0: Welcome to Stories of Divorce Resiliency. My name is Sherri Smith and I'll be your host. I am a marriage and family therapist and certified divorce coach. I work with people every day in my private practice who are in all stages of the divorce process. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing people with inspiring post-divorce stories, as well as experts from the industry to help you no matter where you are on your divorce journey. Divorce is one of life's most painful transitions. It can feel as though your life just imploded. I believe the events in our lives that are the most painful also present an opportunity for personal growth, change, and evolution. Let's start building your new life together today. Welcome to Season 2 of Stories of Divorce Resiliency. I'm so excited to be back here shining light on your path to healing and personal growth. In Season 2, we will cover a wide range of content from spiritually oriented topics to research-based methodologies with a heavy dose of inspiring post-divorce stories. I love hearing from my listeners, so feel free to reach out to me at info at divorceresiliency.com if there's a topic you would like to hear about on my show. You can also follow Divorce Resiliency on Facebook or Instagram to learn about upcoming episodes. Without further ado, let's start the first episode. I can't wait for you to meet Christine Suhan. I'm sure you will find her to be as down to earth, real, and inspiring as I did. Hello, everyone! I am so excited to start season two and the guests that I have in store for you today. I think you're really going to connect with today's guest is Christine Suhan, and uh, Christine and I actually. Have a history together. We actually entered our master's program together. We were interviewed the same day. We were in the same class. And we went through the whole program together. So I'm very excited to have her on because I feel like she's a colleague and a friend. And I know a little bit about her story. And I think you're going to find it really inspiring. So having some back, Christine, welcome.
1: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So good to see your face. Good to see your face too. So if you wouldn't
0: mind just kind of sharing with our listeners a little bit about your background in terms of what you do for a living and a little bit about your story.
1: Absolutely. So, my background, full picture, I am a recovering alcoholic and addict. I have been sober, it'll be 12 years this November. And that's kind of what started my desire to get into the therapy field. So, I entered grad school when I was having all my babies. That was fun. I Um, remember you're such a cute
0: little pregnant lady.
1: (laughs) I remember having to come to orientation or whatever it is that we did that first day back each semester. Austin was only five days old and I had him in the little carrier. I remember like half the people were like, I didn't even know you had a baby with you. (laughs) It was so funny. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Now you have three boys, right?
1: They are currently seven, nine, and 10. So it was kind of back to back to back. That entire grad school time, I was either pregnant, postpartum, or pregnant or postpartum. So it's a little bit of a blur. But after grad school, I actually ended up staying home with the kids for a while. I was fortunate enough that my ex husband worked and had a job that provided enough. So I did stay home with them for a while. And I just got back into doing therapy this past year. And I work for a fully virtual treatment center. We special in opiate use disorders, eating disorders, and other just grave mental health issues that interfere with daily life. So I absolutely love my
0: job. We're so fortunate to have you back in the field because I've seen you in action and you have a gift. So... I'm so grateful for all your clients, happy for all your clients that they get to experience your gift (laughs) and their healing. Thank you. It's good
1: to be back for sure. It helps me just as much as it helps them, I'm sure. Well, what's it
0: been like for you transitioning? Because you were at home. I know you were at home for a while. What was it like for you making that transition from stay-at-home mom Into working again?
1: So the beginning was a little bit hard. Work balance, life balance has never really been my strong suit. I'm someone who, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to, you know, pour everything into it. It's like the zero to 160. So it took a couple months for me to get that balance going. I'm currently a single mom, have my kids full time. So when I started working, we were still dealing with the end of the pandemic so between mothering and helping them with schoolwork and working full time it was a little overwhelming i had to learn to set boundaries for myself with work because i'm naturally a people pleaser this is something beautiful that's come out of my divorce is that i've realized that in order to stop people pleasing, I had to set some really healthy boundaries. And so some of that applied to work as well. You know, I wanted to make exceptions for clients and work outside of my work hours, and that was affecting my kids. So it was a little bit of a process getting everything in balance. But as far as like the actual work, I I never feel like I stopped doing therapy, even though I wasn't working as a therapist, if that makes sense. Because most of the friendships I have are very genuine, deep, vulnerable friendships to where those are our conversations on a daily basis. And I also participated in 12 step programs for a long while and sponsored a lot of people so the actual work of therapy was not hard to get back into it was just balancing my life that was a struggle
0: yeah and you know I, that's one thing I think really has enha- enhances your gift is the 12 the experience in 12 step because the brutal honesty that you have to have to be successful in the program or any 12- step program is going to translate yeah. into your therapeutic abilities.
1: Yes. And that is something too, that I struggled with because our program taught us that, you know, self-disclosure needed to be minimal, right? So we had that drilled into our head. And so when I started working, I realized that Self-disclosure is actually very beneficial and therapeutic if it's done in a helpful, healthy, appropriate way. And so that was another thing I struggled with the first couple months of work. And am I oversharing? Am I sharing too much? Is this all therapeutically relevant? But there is nothing like sitting with somebody, holding space for their trauma and being able to say, me too. I get it. I know that experience.
0: Yes, I can't agree so more. That's been, I can't agree more.
1: Yeah, that's been really, really cool. Just being able to relate to people and tell them like, you know, I, I was there 12 years ago and these are the things that worked for me. It doesn't work for everyone. You know, these are the things I've heard have worked for other people. So I do appreciate having a lot of lived experience that I can relate to my clients.
0: Yes. Awesome. Okay. Well, I love that. I love that. Okay. Well, let's transition. If you don't mind sharing with our listeners kind of a high level overview of your divorce experience, how long Mm -hmm. you've been separated from your, your former spouse and what that journey has been like for you.
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm not going to give too many details about what happened because just out of respect for his privacy and my children and family and whatnot. So I filed for divorce in February of 2020. And it was a very sudden decision based on a traumatic experience that happened in the home. And it was necessary for the safety of my kids filing for divorce. Because in Florida, you either file a restraining order, which is very difficult to get. We tried to get one. And the next step is divorce. There's no separation. There's no legal separation. There's no other way to protect my kids. So when I actually filed for divorce, I was not emotionally... Convinced I was going to get divorced, if that makes sense. I was kind of under the impression, (laughs) I was kind of under the impression that listen, I'll file for divorce, we'll see what happens in the next few months, and then maybe we can work it out, maybe we can't. So, quickly within a month of filing, having him out of the house. It was like the best way I can describe it is it's like I was living in a tornado for several years. My life was very chaotic. There was a lot of confusion. And as soon as he was gone. And it was me and the kids. It was like the tornado dust settled and everything went into focus. And it was all of a sudden, I had this clear picture of everything that had happened throughout our marriage. And the things that I thought were maybe somewhat healthy. I realized how toxic they actually were. I started to see my part in a lot of the toxicity and the ways I contributed to our codependence, our enmeshment, all of that. And so quickly I went from a, this is a on paper divorce to, okay, this is what I need to do for my sanity, my health, and to keep my kids growing up in a stable, loving environment. So it was actually, it was very traumatic. I will say I suffered a lot of PTSD. I've had to do a lot of therapy around that the experiences we had with dealing with severe mental illness. And I do want to say this because I do think it's important because this is becoming more prevalent in our society right now. We were dealing with psychosis. And when I talk about psychosis, I'm not talking about erratic behavior. I'm talking about full on, not grounded in reality. And so that's something that I hear. The more I share my story with people I know, the more I hear, oh yeah, that happened to someone in my family. And so part of me sharing this is just so people can relate. It's it's very taboo to talk about, but it's also becoming very common. And so we were dealing with a situation where my husband was not grounded in reality in the fact that he was hearing voices, the voices were telling him what to say and do. And me with my background in psychology, I understood that when you are at that point, safety becomes a major concern. So I was looking at it from a place of keeping myself and my kids safe and also wanting to encourage him to get the help he needed, because this is the thing. He was a phenomenal dad. It was very much a spiral downward in his mental health. And there was a vast difference between the person he was five years ago versus the person he was when I filed for divorce. And that's something that I feel like is important to talk about because my divorce was more of a loss. And I know all divorce is a loss, but it was more of a loss process with the grief because the person that is, you know, mentally in his body right now is not the person my kids grew up with, not the person I was married to.
0: It's it's almost like based on what you're describing, he had to like have a really clear boundary where he's like not in their lives. So in that way, Very it would feel like it almost like a death.
1: And that the tricky part is something. One of the biggest things I've learned in this is not to compare grief because I experienced heavy grief over this and I felt guilty experiencing grief because he's not dead right? And when I would talk about our loss, people would say things like, but he's not dead. And that doesn't invalidate the loss that I'm feeling just because he's currently still alive. Because like I said, it is a loss in the fact that he's not the person that any of us knew. So my children, not only were they dealing with PTSD from specific events, but they were also dealing with heavy grief at the time because there was a period where They didn't see him or talk to him for seven months after I filed for divorce. And then we tried to do, it's a long time. Mm -hmm. And then we tried to do some visits and they did not go well. And so now there is no contact. There's no communication. They lost their father. Mm -hmm. And
0: in that sense, what I'm hearing is it's almost like this was somebody who was your person, even though your life was chaotic and maybe a little toxic he was your person. And then suddenly poof, he's gone. And maybe your head knew that was the right thing to do, but your heart maybe wasn't aligned with that quite yet. it,
1: It absolutely took time for the head and the heart to be in sync with all of that. And that's where therapy really helped and setting those boundaries. Like I talked about, those were crucial for me. The biggest, I think, part of my healing was seeking that internal closure versus external closure. So even though he is still alive and one day he might be well, and I pray that one day he will be well so that my kids have him in their lives, it's still, I had to come to a place of closure with the relationship inside myself. And that's the other part that complicated all of this is it was a very, very difficult court process because of the mental illness. So there was a lot of PTSD triggers the entire year I was trying to also simultaneously get this internal closure. So it's like, I'm working on closure. I'm also getting erratic texts at the same time. And it's like, how do you do that? Well, it came down to emotional boundaries was the key. And it was something that I thought I had good boundaries before my divorce. And then I realized that I did not at all.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that. Because I think that would really benefit some of our listeners. Cause I actually did an episode with another colleague of ours, Bates Doolin.
1: Oh, <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> that <laughs> was one of boundaries. my favorites. I know. <laughs>
0: She's the best. <laughs> yeah. But I think this is a great opportunity for somebody who actually had lived it to share how they got there. So tell, tell our listeners a little bit more about that process for you.
1: So I wish I had more insight into the actual process of getting there. Right. So it's one of those things where hindsight, you can see everything in clear view, but the actual nitty gritty of day to day getting there was a little messy. And what I mean by that is for me, The best way to describe it is like my life was on fire. Everything I knew was burning to the ground around me. And it was almost survival mode for me to have to only think about my kids and their safety. Right. So I truly credit my children and the fact that I'm a mother to being able to do this work because I'm someone who very much lacks internal accountability and motivation. I know this about myself, (laughs) it's always been an issue. So I have to kind of cater my life to have external accountability so that I still function. Right. So, what I mean by that is like if I don't have a job or something to show up to, it's very easy for me to just be like, Meh, I'm feeling lazy. I'm going to sit in my emotions a little bit today. you know. So with having the kids and having their safety as an issue, that was my motivating factor to have to have these really solid boundaries. So what that looked like was for me from the day I filed for divorce until today, I have not once said anything mean, hurtful, aggressive to my ex via communication, like, because it was that external accountability of the courts are going to have everything documented, you know, like my children are at stake here and I have to do everything perfectly air quotes perfectly. Cause we all know we're not perfect. So that process, it was day by day, accepting the fact that I can't change anybody else. I have no control over other people's reactions to my boundaries, but more, I guess, my actions, my behavior, right? So if I'm setting a boundary, what that means is I am telling somebody what I need for me to stay safe. And if somebody reacts poorly to that, that's in the past, I have been so untrusting of my own intuition that if someone reacted poorly to my boundary, then I would think, oh, okay, that was an inappropriate boundary for me to set. And throughout this process of my divorce, when it was solely focused on keeping my kids safe. It was much easier for me to trust my intuition. And throughout that process, then I realized how, oh, my intuition's been kind of gaslit, I guess, is the best
0: word to say. That's a great way. Um, Yeah. Quickly explain what gaslighting is for those who don't know, if you don't mind.
1: So gaslighting is a very subtle, confusing tool of manipulation that typically you see narcissistic personalities use it. Anybody can do it. So an example would be, let's say I am having a argument with my husband, right? A disagreement with my husband. He says something that is hurtful to me. I react to the hurtful thing that was said, all of a sudden, the problem becomes my reaction instead of the hurtful thing that was said. That's kind of flipping it around to where, well, you're reacting and the reaction is a problem. It's not the initial behavior. That's the problem. They start making reaction the problem.
0: Yeah. So So in other words, like another good example would be, let's just say somebody goes somebody for couple of weeks. You know, you're in regular contact with this person every day and suddenly they ghost you. And and after that, of course you've got feelings about that, right? Cause you, you know, maybe you've tried to reach out and they haven't responded. Suddenly they pop back up and they won't acknowledge the ghosting. They in turn start accusing you of certain things. Not reaching out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in turn, mm-hmm. it becomes your fault that you got ghosted.
1: So, exactly. So, um,
0: and if you have that repeated, I think the point you're making, and I kind of got you derailed there. But I think the point you're making is, when somebody's doing that repeatedly, then you don't trust your gut when it comes to boundaries, you're not trusting, right? You know,
1: and part of why I brought up the fact that I'm a recovering addict is because For me to get sober, I had to fully accept that I didn't know what was best for my life, right? So it's kind of like the 12-step programs I was a part of taught me that I couldn't trust my intuition in the beginning, which was true. I could not trust my intuition when I was first coming off of hardcore drugs and alcohol and my brain was so confused. But over time, I've learned to trust my intuition. And that's the part that was being undermined by the gaslighting was that, no, you can't trust your intuition. You are always the problem, regardless of the circumstance or situation. I was always the problem or my emotions or reactions to the situation were always the problem. And then Mm -hmm. I started to believe that my intuition was off because if I thought situation was the problem and someone else is telling me I'm the problem, then That leads me to believe I can't trust my intuition. So over time, enough years of that behavior happening, it wasn't until I didn't have that constant gaslighting present in my life that I realized, oh, I'm a lot healthier than I thought I was. I really do have an intuition and I really can't trust it.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And there's probably a little bit of trauma bonding happening there, too, where, oh, you know, you're with, you're with this person and and you have kids with this person and and you're trying so hard to make it work that it's really easy to kind of get locked into that dysfunction and think that's normal. You know? Yeah. yeah, And then and when you get some space and distance, you can say, wait a minute. Now I see what was really happening.
1: Exactly. And that was a big part of my healing with my kids as well, is realizing how they were reacting to the situation. I had no idea that it was the environment they were living in that was causing the behaviors. I just thought that's his personality, that's this, you know? And so it was when my kids, their behaviors completely changed once the house was consistent and stable and safe, that's when I really saw what was happening and how much it affected them. And then that in turn helped me to solidify that internal closure that I was talking
0: about. Yes, and I wanna hit, I wanna emphasize, that for our listeners, people think that the kids aren't aware of what's happening in the house. They think that, oh, we don't fight in front of the kids, you know, but maybe you don't speak to each other or maybe there's tension between the two of you. They will absorb that like sponges and it's going to show up in bad behavior. That's how they show stress. So I think that that's why I think that I wanted to emphasize that point because so many people will stay in these really unhealthy, unfixable marriages for the kids and you're really not helping them any. And I
1: was one of them because I knew my marriage was toxic well before the psychosis started. But my thing was always, it's not bad enough to break up the family. I would be doing damage to my kids. I told myself that was selfish and that I can completely understand how a lot of people stay in situations like that because you that you're doing what's best for the kids. And I'm, emotions really cloud our judgment, right? So it's it's always that gift of perspective when you're out of the situation. You're like, oh, why didn't I see it then? But it also, there's so much to that because we all know that behavior for kids is communication, So a lot of that behavior I was experiencing, especially from my middle, I had comments from teachers and neighbors and friends like months after I filed for divorce that, oh, Rylan's back to the kid he was when we met him. And like that to me was simultaneously like heart wrenching and amazing because it's like, oh. yeah, look what a little stability and consistency and healing can do. But also, wow, I didn't realize he was that affected, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So and how are they doing now? Cause it's been, how long has it been since you got separated?
1: So it's been about a year and a half. Okay. So the divorce was finalized this February and they're doing phenomenal. Like I could probably cry talking about it. I just honestly believe that God prepared me for this situation through my degree in marriage and family therapy. You know, like I I was always wondering, am I ever even going to use this degree? And that year where it was actually fortunate for me that COVID happened when it did, because I filed for divorce a month before COVID hit. So having the kids home with me and not being able to go anywhere, it was like, Inpatient treatment, right? Yes. <laughs> so all we did was work on our PTSD, our anxiety, all of this stuff, and they have just become the best version of themselves. That's the best way to describe it, because they're still kids, oh, right? I'm getting so up, I'm they're getting emotional now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just so incredible to see how much they understand how graceful they are with the situation and that was another big part of this is there was no part of me that wanted them to believe their dad didn't love them so they fully understand mental illness they understand what happened in his brain they understand that he did not choose this and i'm not angry at him for this like yeah. i understand mental illness i understand that he's not rationally choosing any of this right now and so that was another piece of that is like we are able to still love him and have compassion and grace for him, even though he's not a safe person for us to be around. And I think that has really helped them to understand that they're worthy. They're lovable. They're all the things I've been telling them they are their whole life. And dad leaving had nothing to do with them. And they didn't internalize that at all, which most kids do because adults don't know how to communicate. That yes,
0: stuff to they will immediately blame them. They'll figure out a way. They'll get creative and figure out a way to blame yeah. themselves. You and I are Facebook friends. And I remember early in the pandemic, you posted some of the activities you were doing with them. And they were so cool. I mean, I was, I could tell your kids were loving it. And I actually shared some of your activities with my clients, but there was oh, one, I, I do remember something with food coloring <laughs> with, with, I can't yes. remember what that was. I remember you posted a schedule that you had them on mm-hmm. and you had built in play time in mm-hmm. the schedule. That's the thing I shared with other clients. You know, I think yeah. that was, you, you had a nice balanced schedule for them.
1: And the schedule every morning, we started with family meeting where we talked about what we were grateful for because gratitude, gratitude is so key when your entire world is crashing around you. It's like Mm -hmm. find the little tiny things that you can hold on to for hope.
0: Mm -hmm. What was the food coloring exercise? I can't really, I remember seeing it.
1: It was paper towels. You put different colored food coloring in cups with water or vinegar. I can't even remember now. But you you connect the paper towels and it's to show that the color actually absorbs and goes into the next one. So it was almost like a rainbow. It was. Yeah. I'm not a teacher. So I literally, it was like I found the activity, I explained it, and now it's out of my mind. So I can't tell you why (laughs) it was... It was some sort of science experiment that had a point, I promise. But I know that I was thinking I that
0: I was thinking it was such a fun little scientific experience, like a fun way of learning. You know, I just thought that was awesome. You were really yeah. you were so I think you were probably your best, may not realize it, but best mom self during that time. Oh <laughs> in so absolutely. many ways. So
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And I try to carry that into today now too. Like that's part of my balancing work. It's I, the biggest thing I learned from my divorce is that my internal dialogue has to be my healthiest relationship in my life, because it's so easy when you're going through things like that, especially like my divorce was very complicated. There was a lot of people taking sides, right? So I'm getting a lot of messages from people that tell me how terrible, how crazy I am, how this, how that, how this, how that. So for me, it was really solidifying the fact that my internal dialogue, like I have to be my best friend in my head. And that was what changed everything for me because I never realized how critical I was of myself, how judgmental I was of myself, how shaming I was of myself. And I mean, it took like, I had positive affirmations on post-it notes stuck to every mirror in my house. It like, it took a lot of work to get there, but it got there. And so now my default, and this is something that I don't know if a lot of people know, but everyone knows positive affirmations, not many people know the science behind them. But what happens is through our experiences in childhood, we are basically conditioned towards negative belief systems, right? So we have these negative core beliefs about ourselves, I'm ugly, I'm worthless, I'm this, I'm that, because of experiences we've had throughout our lifetime that actually wire our brains towards negativity. So positive affirmations are a way to rewire the neural pathways that have been conditioned in our brains because of experiences. So the positive affirmations, the more repetition you have, it's rewiring those neural pathways towards positivity instead of negativity.
0: Yeah. And I often tell my clients, you can't have a positive life with a negative mind. So you basically just Mm -hmm. broke that down for them and gave it to them in scientific terms. So yeah, I mean, if you're walking around beating yourself up, then you're you're not going to have a positive life experience.
1: Exactly. And it's not as easy as just like think happy thoughts. You know, it does take a lot of work. There were a lot of days where I sat there crying, reading my affirmations because I didn't believe them. But the more I read them to myself. The more I said them to myself, I slowly started to believe them. And then that's what changed everything. It was like a snowball effect. Yeah.
0: And when you look back on it, is there like a turning point that you can kind of pinpoint when things kind of started to shift?
1: I would say, I mean, it was so gradual for me. It was probably month one was really difficult. And then month two was a little less difficult. And I would say at about six months was when I truly felt free. I felt like I had been given a second chance at life. I felt like I could see the reason for everything. I could make sense of all this experience and I could use it to better my life, if that makes sense.
0: Yes, it makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. So you were starting to see the payoff. You're starting to see that was starting to work, which in turn, inspired you to keep doing it.
1: Exactly. And that was something too, that I did EMDR therapy for my PTSD, which was very effective. I also did this therapy called rapid trauma reprocessing. Yeah,
0: (laughs) I recently learned about that model. And I'm very intrigued by it.
1: Does it use an element of EMDR or similar? So basically, it was my experience with it, and I don't know enough about it to know if this is like, was this something that is like got a script kind of like EMDR, or if it's kind of each clinician does their own thing. But my experience with it was it was a three hour long therapy session, a one time thing was all it took. And he basically changed the way I looked at trauma, if that makes sense, okay. in my mind. Okay. So... I don't want to get too in detail with this because it's a lot to explain, but the premise is when you go through a traumatic event, when you're a child, your brain is almost pushing the snooze button in certain areas of your brain, right? So the idea with this is to reintegrate all aspects of your brain. Cause every time you have trauma, you're kind of snoozing a different part of your brain. So then your brain is not engaging fully. So With this model, it's basically looking at how do you see trauma? How do you see your triggers? And how can we rearrange that view so that it doesn't affect you? It doesn't trigger you.
0: Are you within three years of separation or divorce from your spouse and feeling lost on where to go from here? If so, check out my book, Divorce Resiliency, Release the Trauma of Your Divorce and Reconnect with Your Best Self. My intention with this book is to give you a practical step-by-step guide to climb out of the darkness and into the light. You'll read inspiring case studies of women just like you. My book also includes exercises and interventions, arming you with the tools you need to not only survive, but thrive. You can go on to create a life that is happier and healthier than you ever imagined. Just some of what is offered in this book includes... Actionable advice on managing your emotions and changing a relationship with your former spouse. Unwinding from codependency and trauma bonding. Reclaiming your identity and creating more balance and fulfillment in your life. Strategies for re entering the mysterious world of dating. Healthy co parenting techniques, including blended family dynamics. Grab a copy on Amazon.com or from my website, divorceresiliency.com. Okay. So for our listeners, Christine and I just verified that that the actual name of the therapy, if you're interested, is Rapid Trauma Resolution Therapy. RRT is the acronym for it. So once you got into therapy and you're able to deal with your trauma, I would Mm -hmm. imagine at that point, you were able to kind of deal more with the grieving process that you were experiencing. Yes.
1: Yes. That was actually, I have the best therapist in the world. I've been through a lot of them and I swear that he is the best, but he taught me how to intentionally grieve, which grief was so foreign to me before all of this. I I've lost a lot of people, but never anyone that was a part of my daily life before. And so this was my first experience with loss. And I didn't know a thing about grief. I didn't know that grief is its own language in and of itself. I didn't know how irrationably angry I could become just from one thing somebody said to me. And so by learning ways to intentionally grieve, I was able to kind of take control of the grief, if that makes sense. Like Because grief, I'm sure you know, you've experienced it and it's just so unpredictable. So oh, intentionally grieving takes away some of the unpredictability of it, which made my life a little bit more manageable.
0: So intentionally grieving, because I think this is what I, another phrase for what I recommend for my clients. Is that where you set aside time to sit with your grief?
1: Yes. Or do okay. you activities that kind of force. So I'm someone that spent a lot of years learning how a numb emotions. So I don't cry often. It takes a lot for me to really like dig deep into those emotions. So intentional grieving for me were things like writing letters to my ex, to myself, to my kids, watching movies that I knew would trigger certain memories, events, writing down the good times we had together, all the fond memories, writing down the bad memories that I wanted to get rid of, you know, like little things like that, that I could do on a daily basis so that it would not catch me off guard. Like we were talking about.
0: Yeah. So I, that's, I never, I had was not referring to it as intentional grief and I'm going to start using it that term but that's I recommend that for my clients especially if you have kids that you're trying to be a secure base for because you know when you're when they're going through a transition the best thing you can do is just be a secure base for them and that's show up and follow through do what you say you're going to do and be willing to sit with them and their vulnerability and their emotions Mm -hmm. that's not always easy to do if you, you are dealing with your own stuff so I will recommend for my clients, uh, sit in the tub, light some candles and listen to music that reminds you of your ex. Or watch a sad movie. Yeah. (laughs) Music's the best way to connect. Music's the
1: best. (laughs) It really is. It really is. I would go for drives in my car just to get away from the kids. So I would have some quiet time. I would put on songs that like reminded me of him and just scream or cry or whatever I felt I needed to do.
0: Yeah. So leaning into that process rather than trying to numb yourself or self-medicate or what, you know, which we all do in some shape or fashion. So, okay. All right. So once you were able to kind of connect with that was, were there any particular, I heard you mentioned watching movies and listening to music. Were there any other techniques that you feel like really helped you connect with your grief?
1: Podcasts. I listened to a lot of podcasts.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was yeah. a good one.
1: Just conversations with other people who have experienced grief, because like I mentioned, grief is its own language. So if you are in communication with people that speak that same language, it's so refreshing because grief feels so lonely, so lonely. Like, even if I know someone's lost someone, I still convince myself that they don't know what I'm feeling right now. So being able to kind of speak that language, get out of myself a little bit for me, venting is the most effective therapy technique there is, I just have to get it out of me. So I had a few safe people that talked to me every single day, sometimes multiple times a day, and just held space for me and held space for my grief and didn't say things like that's the thing. Everyone thinks, Oh, I I don't know what to say. Well, that don't say anything, just be there. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that was so crucial for me just having people to hold that space.
0: Yeah. And I want to just kind of dig into that for briefly for our listeners who have ever experienced that. So when you need emotional support from somebody, and you're sharing your vulnerability with that person, that person probably really cares about you. And when they're hearing that it creates anxiety for them. So in turn, they want their anxiety to go away. So they try to fix it for you. Yes, that's kind of from a system dynamic, what's happening right there. And it's it's not what you need. I need you to kind of manage your anxiety and sit with me in this and just let me exactly. be here. Yeah. So I just kind of want to give that some context because I think when you're going through a divorce, you really just need that. You need to build a vent. You need, you need to have people that you can lean on, but those people need to be equipped to handle that. And that's how mm-hmm. how they can become equipped is just listen, listen to me right now is going to create some anxiety for you. I'm gonna let you know up front, you don't need to fix it for me. I just need to get some things off my chest. And I would love it if you just kind of be my sounding board right now. You know, setting that boundary with
1: them. I love how you said that because I as a therapist understand that it's their anxiety, right? But in the moment, you still can't help but to have an emotional response to someone telling you to fix your grief. So I love that reminder and the idea of setting the boundary at the start of the conversation. Like, listen, I just need to vent. I don't want any feedback. I don't want any advice. I just need you to listen.
0: Mm -hmm. Which is hard. It's really hard to do that and sit with your own emotions while you're doing it. It's really hard. Yeah. But that's how you can be the best friend to that person. Okay. Okay. I wanted to ask you because I know about you, you, as you mentioned in your case, your former spouse is basically out of the picture and you're not doing any kind of co parenting with him. How do you manage that? How do you get self care in? Because you do such a phenomenal job being a mom and it's 24 seven. (laughs) It's It's 24 seven.
1: It's 24 seven. So it's funny, actually, I had my first long break from them a couple of weeks ago. My parents took them for two weeks because I was moving from Florida up to North Carolina. So that was the longest I've been away from my kids since they were born. And they came back. And within an hour, I felt like the worst mom in the world. I was like thinking to myself, I just need them to leave again because I didn't realize how desperately I needed a break. And the break that I got was not really a break because I was moving. Right. So there was no self-care happening during moving. It was just chaos. So on a daily basis, my kids are so good about understanding that I'm a single mom, that I get stressed out, that I work full time. And part of that is me communicating to them. So we went through a transitional period where they were very needy, which is appropriate given their ages and the situation, but I could not meet all three of their needs and also care for myself. So I had to start telling them, mommy's feeling really anxious today. I have a lot going on. I need some space. This has nothing to do with you. I will come talk to you when I'm done. So the more I was able to kind of include them in my emotional process, the more grace and understanding they gave to me, which then made our entire house function a lot better. So oh, now they it was phenomenal. Like I didn't realize they would respond so well to that, but they did. And so that's continuously what I do is I just tell them where I'm at with my emotional space. When I'm feeling good, when I'm okay, we go do fun things as soon as I get off work. If I need five or 10 minutes to decompress because I've been holding space for heavy trauma all day, I tell them i need need 10 or 15 minutes, you know, and they are very respectful of that. And that in turn is allowing them to also voice their needs to me and each other, which was something I didn't expect from that. But I have seen, especially the oldest, he will come up to me and say, I just really need to talk right now. I don't know why. I don't know what I want to talk about, but I need to talk. So he is learning how to voice his needs as well, which is really cool.
0: Yeah, that's what I was thinking as you were describing that you're just kind of modeling how to be honest about Mm -hmm. what you're feeling and communicate your feelings and your needs in a really healthy way. So,
1: Well, and I think too, part of my healing journey was not taking things so personally. My entire life, I've been someone who personalizes everything. And so by communicating to my kids that mommy's reaction is because she's stressed out, it has nothing to do with you. It's like also reiterating that fact in my own head that just because someone's stressed out and snaps at me, that doesn't mean they don't like me or that I'm a problem or I'm wrong, you know?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you're just being honest about where you're coming from. Well done. So I'm sorry, where are we going to go? I didn't mean to interrupt.
1: (laughs) Well, I was just going to say something that popped into my head that I thought was really cool. It was a conversation I had with my kids probably like a year ago. And they said to me, they were like, we really appreciate that you're the cool mom. You don't have a ton of rules. And I said. The reason I don't have to have rules is because you guys have learned how to be respectful of each other, of me, and of the house. And so I kind of pitch it to them in that way. If we can all respect each other and our belongings and our space, there don't need to be a ton of rules. I love it. I love it. (laughs) So I'm trying to teach respect and vulnerability and communication as opposed to trying to control their behavior, because trying to control a kid's behavior is naturally what parents want to do. But it's so wildly ineffective. because, as we said before, behavior is communication. So unless you understand the behavior, then all you're doing by trying to control it is causing the kids to want to communicate in a different way, which is amplified behavior.
0: Yeah. Pushing back. we usually pushing back against the rules. So yeah, I love that because it also teaches autonomy. It teaches how to be differentiated, you know, kind of helps them figure out who they are, who their identity is and how they want to show up in their relationship. I mean, there's just so many ways that that could have such a long lasting impact yeah, in, a po- in a really positive way.
1: Okay. And I mean, I will say for people listening, I didn't do any of this perfectly. I had days where I screamed at them and they had PTSD reactions because of my behavior. And I had to go and apologize and repair the relationship. So yeah. let's normalize the fact that I'm very human. I parent just like everyone else. I have my good <laughs> days and I have my bad days.
0: <laughs> well, and I always say a good repair is all that really matters. I mean, we are we are all human and we're going to screw up and say stupid crap and a good repair is what where emotional connections built and where, you know, you can really get in touch with your vulnerability. So yeah, good repair is is good. Good thing. Very good thing.
1: I mean, I threw the repair language in there just for you. (laughs) Awesome. I love
0: it. (laughs) Okay, Christine, well, we're actually coming close to the end of our time together. So is there anything that you feel that we haven't that you haven't already shared that you feel would benefit our listeners, if they're thinking about this or about are going through it?
1: I think the biggest thing for people thinking about a divorce is if you're thinking about getting divorced, that means that intuitively, you know, something's off. Right. And so, whatever it is that's keeping you from making the decision that is healthiest for you needs to be reevaluated. Whether it's you think your kids are not going to handle it well, you think other people are going to judge you. Those are the things that I would highly, highly recommend trying to trust your intuition more than being concerned about those things that you're worried about. Okay. Yeah, I like it. I could have said it in a more eloquent way, but no. there it is.
0: <laughs> no, I think what you're saying is examining why you don't want to make a decision that's healthy for you. And I mean the healthy decision might be that you are able to repair the marriage, but you have to be really brutally honest with your spouse and say things that might be hurtful and and stop people-pleasing and stop, you know, maybe that's what's healthy for you. Or it could be exiting the marriage. So it just depends, but examining that and why you don't want to advocate for that for yourself.
1: Something that was really helpful advice for me years ago that I should have probably paid more attention to, somebody told me that you cannot expect the other person to change, right? Like we have no control over the other person at all. So if you are someone who's in a marriage waiting for the other person to do the work to change themselves, then you're going to be unhappy. So you either have to accept that person fully as they are in this present moment or pack up your stuff and leave.
0: Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Here, here. I think that think we ought to wrap it up on that note, because that is such a powerful statement you just made. Okay, Christine, thank you so much for showing up and being you and bringing your authentic self to this interview. I think you're really going to help a lot of people. And I really wish you all the best as you move forward on your journey. And hopefully we can have you back after you get further down the road and you can have more words of wisdom to share.
1: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I would love to. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Do you feel you have an inspiring post-divorce story that can help others? If so, please drop an email to info at divorceresiliency.com. If you'd like to be informed when new episodes are released, please click the follow button in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Please feel free to leave a review. Until next time, have a great week.